0: fair for me to communicate with you, my heart, what I mean by that is to not be ambiguous or confusing when it comes to exactly what my intentions were in being here. I have a, a pet peeve, and if you don't know what a pet peeve is, basically something that bothers you, that's not necessarily wrong or right. For instance, um, growing up, my mother liked to file her nails with one of those like, little things that's got like, a, a rough edge. And that was a pet peeve of mine because the sound of it is like fingernails on a chalkboard and ew, it just bothers me. And so eventually my mother had mercy and she would never do it in the same room as myself. Um, I have a pet peeve at airports. Um, when, when I, first of all, I take steps everywhere I go. I don't do moving sidewalks and escalators. But, but if I have to take an escalator, a pet peeve of mine is when people have to block the whole escalator at one time, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like they put their suitcase over here and they take up a full step. I mean, like some people like to walk. Like some people don't, you know, it's like the, the automatic modes of, so, you know, I really appreciate it when people like, you know, just take up half of it. Pet peeves, not necessarily really important things, just things that, you know, affect you. But when it comes to the word of God... I hesitate sometimes to call it a pet peeve, but I'm going to call it that for right now. And that is, a pet peeve of mine is when we come and study God's word and we leave smarter, but not more obedient. I'm actually kind of exhausted with an intelligent church. I'm just being really honest with you. I'm kind of venting a little bit. So however you want to look at it, from the scenes we absorb, the billboards we take in, the movies and YouTube videos we watch, to the conversations we have, to the books we read, we take in 32 gigs per day of information. Biblically speaking, you can leave this conference and you can go and you can study Philippians chapter 3 and you can look up thousands of commentaries on it, you can listen to Thousands of messages on it. You can do as much as you want to dissect every word in the passage. And you don't have to be a biblical scholar of Greek and Hebrew to have other people uh, break it down for you. And you can go and glean a whole lot and you can be smart. But none of that remotely pushes us towards what Paul is pushing us towards in Philippians 3. None of that is knowing Christ. That's all knowing about Christ. See, knowing Christ is going to happen when you take the word of God and you let it settle into your life and then you respond to it in humility and then you let the experiences of your life bring forth ultimately obedience because you take the word of God as ultimate as the throne of your life, Jesus Christ. There is a story told of a man who visited a a tribe over in my part of the world, in West Africa. And in every one of our tribes, we have a village chief. And the village chief uh, is the man who um, basically oversees the affairs of the village. And so when this uh, foreigner arrived, I, I, I think he was American, maybe he was Canadian, but he comes over. And he's a bodybuilder. He's a very large guy. And I can kind of imagine what it would have been like, because I've had my cousin visit me before over there, and he's also a bodybuilder. And, and, uh, and this guy's had massive biceps. And when he came to the village, the villagers were very impressed with his body. And they like to look at his arms. There's a couple guys here that, like, every time you walk by, I'm like, wow, you've got big biceps. You know who you are. Um, <laughs> we all know who you are. Just saying. All right, so... It, they were admiring it and the village chief said to this guy, he said, uh, "He says, man, those are impressive arms you have. What do you do with them? The man didn't know quite how to respond to that question. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, the village chief, what do you do with them? Like, they're, they're great. What do you do with them? And the bodybuilder was like, well, I, no, I, I show them. He says, no, no, like, what do you do with them? And he was confused, like, I don't, I don't know. He says, like, I mean, like, do you, like, plow fields? You know, do you bring the oxen out? Do you yoke them? Like, what's up? It's like, no, I just, I, I show them. And the village chief is just like, wow, what a waste. <laughs> and, and that's how I, I, I feel when it comes to the word of God. And I'll tell you, my heart for you all and my heart for myself and Hudson, is that when we leave this weekend, I don't care at all if you learn something new. I don't care at all. I don't care if I've repeated things that other people have said to you for many years. I don't care if you think, "Man, he knows the word well or he doesn't know the word well. I don't care about any of that at all. I Don't care if I ever get invited back or I do. Like that's none of that. What I care about is that we leave here treasuring Jesus Christ more and pleasing Him more fully, obediently applying the word that was spoken. So as we come to this final portion of the chapter in these last two messages, they're going to be extremely practical, I trust, once again, because for my life, it's all been practical. If you want to break down the three days, it's actually been very much a theme. Day one was about one passion. The first two messages, having one passion. And that one passion is the Lord Jesus Christ. Day two was about one pursuit. One pursuit. One thing I do. Pressing on. And now for the last final morning that we have to gather, day three and the last two messages, I want us to see this as one prize, one prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus and our citizenship being in heaven. So with that being said, let's go back to the word of God, back to Philippians chapter three, and we'll begin reading in verse 12 and we'll read from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. As we discover this one prize, and ultimately that is to be forever with the Lord. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained. This or that I'm already perfected. But I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you once again that we have the opportunity to be in it and to just soak in here for a while, to let your words penetrate our hearts. Lord, I'm asking that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Lord, I'm asking that you, in your mercy, convict us. Convict us of sin. Convict us of righteousness that should be, but it's not. Convict us of judgment, wisdom, your mind. And most of all, Lord, convict us in ways that we are not treasuring the Lord Jesus Christ as we ought. So I'm excited. I'm excited for what you're going to do. And we will make sure to give you all the glory because the glory is yours. And Lord, I ask if anything said not from you, may it not be remembered by any of us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So heading back to Philippians 3, verse 14, that's where we're going to pick up during this session. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on toward the goal and this goal being the prize of that upward call. I want us to think a few minutes about the goal. If you're taking notes, which I know many of you are, the first word we're just going to take here is the word to turn, to turn. What I mean by to turn, it really comes from the idea of repentance. Because any time that we are going to fix our eyes on the goal fix our eyes on that prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that journey always starts with repentance. You know why? Because any time that we're going to start that journey, it means we're turning from something else. And this is what I want us to understand is that in our lives... There needs to be a moment of repentance. I didn't say repentance unto salvation of the soul. Repentance unto salvation of our journey, like in the sense of being saved from a worthless life. That can confuse people, by the way, because in Scripture, it talks a lot about salvation. It's not always about salvation of the soul. Sometimes it's about salvation from things in our life. And so when we understand that, we oftentimes will get our theology much more straight. But with that being said, there's a turning that's going to be involved. But but before we make the turn, and this idea of repentance, which literally means to turn around 180 degrees, I want to ask us, well, what really is our goal? Because once we set our goal, everything else kind of becomes... uh, it caters to that goal. It, it, it becomes something which uh, aids that goal, which assists that goal. I'll give you an illustration. I'm a swim coach. And, uh, and, and in swimming, one thing I've really learned about kids, because coach, uh, I've coached you know, from very young kids up to Olympic swimmers, and you see a very different level of, um, of passion for the sport, and you see a very different level of motivation, so one of the first things I do is I sit down with the swimmer. And I ask them, I say, what is your goal in the sport of swimming? How far do you want to get? Because I believe, now some kids, I'll, t- I'll be honest with them, I'll, I'll tell them, like you can be a great high school swimmer, but you know, you're not going to get a college scholarship to swim. You're, you're a good swimmer. You might make it into college to swim. You're not an Olympian, you know, like, I'm not, I'm not like, I don't tell them that right away, but like, you also don't want a kid to just like waste their existence in swimming when they have the body of a rugby player. You know what I'm saying? Like, come on, you're going to sink, dude. So, I mean, uh, you got, you got to be realistic in some regards there. So I sit down with them and I ask them, how far do you want to go? Because me as a coach, Hudson knows I'm speaking the truth. I can push people physically to limits that they definitely never even knew were possible within the human body. And if you doubt me with that, get, let, me, let me work you out for 15 minutes. and I guarantee you within 15 minutes, you will understand what I'm talking about. It's called a core workout, and this is a serious core workout. Um, with that being said, they tell me how far they want to go. Now, the kids that say, I want to be as good as I can be, I say, Really? I'll pick you up tomorrow morning at 3.45 in the morning, and we'll start. Oh, I'm not joking. And we brutally work out the body on land. We brutally work out the body in the pool. We do sprints that could have your heart rate up to 220 in three minutes. Now, obviously, that's not healthy, so we're not doing that. But my point being is it is brutal, 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 because they know what their goal is. And do you think they enjoy the workouts? No. But you know what they're thinking about when they come to the pool to work out or to the gym to work out? They're thinking about a gold medal for their nation. They're thinking about being the best they can be. They're thinking about representing their school well. But first, I have to know their goal. If I don't know their goal, you know what they're going to do? They're going to quit swimming really fast because it's not fun. You've got to know where you're headed. And as Christians, I'm going to really challenge us in this message right here, like straight out. I want to ask you, first of all, I'm going to ask you a question, you're going to want to answer it, but don't answer it yet, because I'm going to ask you another question that's going to follow up, and then you're going to be like, "Uh uh-oh, my first answer was wrong. Okay, so just pause, slow down. What really is your goal? Like, in other words, what is everything in your life kind of pushing you towards? Some of you, your goal is to live a very confused life, because you're distracted by many things. But what is really your goal? All right. If any of you have said, my goal is to know Christ, or my goal is to please Christ, or my goal is to live for Christ, great, except I would like you to please share with me in an articulated form, what is your action plan on a daily level to prepare for the day you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give account for all the works done in the body, whether good or worthless. I sure hope you have it written out. You have a lot of other things written out in life. I would assume that if that really is your goal, you've got it articulated and you are ready to say, yes, this is why I do this in the morning. This is why I do this in conversations. This is why I think this way. This is why I do this and this is why I do that. I would suggest to you that most of us prepare more for lunch than we do for the judgment seat of Christ. I want to challenge you. If you're serious about turning... If you're serious about the goal, if you're serious about the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, I want to strongly suggest to you, be intentional in your preparation. Think through, how can I bring my body under subjection, not trying harder, this is not about your efforts This is about knowing Christ and in knowing Christ saying, I want to know him in my speech. I want to know him in my investments. I want to know him intimately in my relationships. I want to know him in my private life. I want to know him in my leisure. I want to know him. And therefore, I want to say, okay, how can I know him best in this way? So the first thing we see here is we see that there's going to be a turning. There's going to be a turning toward the goal, but you can't turn toward the goal until you know what the goal is. You can't turn toward the goal until you decide which goal you're going to pursue. Again, yesterday I gave you the illustration of shooting the arrow at the wall and then painting the, painting the bullseye around the arrow, and we realize that that's oftentimes what we end up doing spiritually. And I want to challenge you that God gives us far more direction than that, and I want to challenge myself to say, Nathan, there's nothing more important than being being prepared to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, make it your aim to be well-pleasing to him in all that you do. That's the first thing to turn. But there's more. Keep going on in the passage. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. The second thing that we see, if the first thing is to turn, the second word I want us to look at is the word to think. To think. What is Paul asking us to do? He says, let those of us who are mature Think in this way so if you want to go on like it says in first peter chapter chapter two verse one and it it speaks of desiring the meat of the word right moving on from the milk well if you want to be mature it's really going to start after this turning it's going to start with a thinking it's going to start with an intentionality in the way that we think and, and when you think about your thought life uh, we talked a little bit about this in the men's group, so um, for men, maybe this is a little bit of repetition. But one thing where we're taught to do in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, is it says we are to take every thought into captivity into uh, for obedience to Christ. Now, if I'm taking every thought into captivity, and if the first thing is turning toward the goal, and the second t- thing is thinking in a certain way, what is this way in which i 'm thinking well it really goes back to that first message that we talked about and it 's thinking about how does this make me treasure more how treasure Christ more how does this make me show him more clearly in my life it 's thinking in such a way where, where you have a filter like a water filter and everything is going through that water filter and all the bacteria that shouldn 't be in the water is being stopped by the filter you 've got a filter in your life and everything in your life is going through this filter that's maturity so in other words my words are all going through a filter you want a really good filter for your words philippians chapter 4 verse 8 great filter eight steps if really your words can make it through all eight steps i guarantee your words are going to bless everybody around you okay but they probably won't make it through that but that means we should probably all be a lot more quiet in our life that being said there's stuff especially on social media young people all right Whatsoever things are true. That's like where it starts out. Okay, hello. Do you know it's true or do you trust a journalist? All right. So, moving on. Filters. When things go through a filter, a lot doesn't make it through. We live in a very crooked and perverse generation, in the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, what is this filter? It's thinking a certain way. It's maturity in our spiritual life. And so what we see the Lord inviting us into is a whole new way of thinking. Now that word think, that word think is not a new word in the book of Philippians. In fact, it's been a theme that Paul has carried out through every chapter. It starts out at the very very beginning in Philippians 1 where he talks about how he thinks of them. But then in chapter 2, he says, I want you all to think in the same way. And he says that, like in chapter 2, verse 2, I believe it is, but in chapter 2, verse 5, he tells us what thinking in the same way looks like. A lot of our translations say something like, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. But that's, that, that, that's kind of a weird way to translate it, since that's not the word that's been being used before. The word mind is to think. What, what, it, what it's saying is, let your thinking be that of Christ Jesus. Think like Jesus. So I want you all to think the same way, but I want you all to think like Jesus Christ. And that's exactly the same word we've got here now in chapter 3, and it'll reappear again in chapter 4. And so what we got is we have this invitation to think like our Savior. And so he says it actually twice, let those of who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, (laughs) that means if anything you don't think like Jesus, well, that will be revealed to you as well. In other words, I'll be patient with you, and you be patient with me. We all desire maturity. We all, if we're in Christ, I would hope we desire maturity. I I hope we're not content with where we're at. But you know what? Let's all think like Christ. And if you're not thinking like Christ, well, the Holy Spirit will work on that. But this is a choice we actually have this morning. In October of 2018... At this Calvary church retreat, we actually have the choice to grow in maturity and say, I'm going to choose to put things through the filter of the way Jesus thinks. Who, being very God, he didn't consider robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. Isn't that amazing? Made himself of no reputation. I think that's one of the hardest things. Imagine being no reputation, having no reputation. Like, I mean, that's God himself, but us, like, we don't even like losing our reputation. We don't like it when people say bad things about us. We don't like it when we go unnoticed. We, we don't like to be uh, invisible. And yet that's the kind of thinking that we've got going on here. So when we're pursuing this goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, we're turning a certain direction and now we're thinking a new way. And that thinking means, this is crazy, this thinking means that now you're out of the picture. That's, that's, that's really the fourth thing. Like, you're out of the picture. It's no longer about you whatsoever. All right, let's bring this down to another level. Uh, we were having a good conversation yesterday, and you brought something up that I'm going to bring up now for us to discuss. This brings out the difference between two key terms. One is self-denial, and the other is denial of self. When Jesus Christ calls you to follow him, he says, if any man desires to come after me, Let him, what does he not say? He doesn't say, practice self-denial, take up his cross and follow me. He says, deny self. Big difference. See, in the church, we practice a lot of self-denial. Self-denial is a form of religion. Denial of self is surrender. Big difference. I'll go back to swimming for a second. Swimmers practice a lot of self-denial. You see, if you want to be a good swimmer, you're going to get up early and you're going to go to bed early. If you want to practice good swimming, uh, if you want to be an elite swimmer, you're going to to know what you're putting into your body and you're going to be wise with that. If you want to be a good swimmer, you're not going to have much social life because you're going to be in the pool and you're going to be around the pool most of your time. That's self-denial. You're denying yourself of a lot of things, but that's not denial of self. Denial of self is far more drastic. Denial of self means I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That is not a devaluation of who you are. In fact, if anything, it is now the opportunity to be fully who you were created to be. And that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I want you to know you're way more valuable than the value you've been putting on your life. But that value will only come out when you're plugged into the source of power that you were created to enjoy. And that's the Holy Spirit's power, which will be enjoyed to its fullest as you turn toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Does this all make sense? Are we following? Because I want to make sure that I'm not just throwing a lot of words out. Out of this portion. Let's keep moving, though. I'm sorry, I'm just identifying. So let's continue reading here only let it verse 16 only let us hold true to what we have attained now keep going here uh or actually let's let's pause there let, let's just stop there only let us hold true to what we have attained look, look, look at what it says in the middle of that verse hold true that, that caught my attention and I was like even enjoying some meditation on that this morning, this idea of holding true. And I would love to hear your thoughts on it as, as you just marinate in the word on, on this word specifically. What does it mean to hold true to these things? I'll tell you one thing it indicates to me. It indicates that it's something that's easy to lose a grip on. It's something easy to be distracted from. Just because I turn toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, just because I'm thinking a certain way does not mean I'm going to hold true to what I have received, okay? And so when I think of holding true, it it tells me like, wow, I've got to really protect this because this is ultimately what's going to keep me Living in such a way where I will have nothing of which to be ashamed when I stand before Christ. See, when I'm traveling, there's one thing that I hold close to me. And, and I've got a lot more paranoia because even when I was robbed and I refer to being robbed, um, my, my passport, all my documents and, and my Social Security and, my, and just all these things were taken too. So I lost all that stuff too, right? But now, since that time, I have this crazy obsession of holding my passport. Because I'm like, all right, they can take everything else, but if I have my passport, I can still move. Now, obviously, the Lord has a sense of humor, so he allows that to be robbed occasionally, too. That's fine. It's not a big deal. But it doesn't mean I don't hold it close. When I think about holding a passport close, I'm doing it because I see that as a valuable asset to being able to achieve Or pursue what I deem important. But what am I holding true here? I'm holding true what's been given. I'm holding true what's been attained. I'm holding true to this pursuit, this prize that is in view. I wonder, what are we holding close and more so than just that what does it look like to hold super close this? I, I really don't know. Like, I mean, in Deuteronomy 6, it was like, put the word of God around your neck. Put it above your door. Teach it to your children when they lie down and when they get up. And it's like, bam, have it right in front of you. But what does it look like for you? I, I don't know. But what will it look like for you to go, to go home this afternoon And say the things that I have received from the word of God. I'm going to hold super close. So that tomorrow morning, Monday morning. When you go to the office. You're holding true to this filter of eternity. You're you're preparing for that day of standing before Christ. Knowing it could be today. We hold true. So if the first thing we do. Is we turn. And the second thing we do. Is that we. Uh, is that we think. The third thing of holding true. I call that to take. We take. We take what we've received. And we hold it close. We take it. Again I'm just giving you these letters. So that we can remember it. So you're like what am I supposed to do. Turn. Think. Take. But that's not where it stops. Look let's go on further. Verse 17. Brothers. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Okay, now we're going to get to more practicality, not better practicality, just more practicality. Now that we've seen the prize, we've turned toward the prize, we're thinking a new way, we're holding things close, now... We have something to transmit. Transmit. In other words, there's something to share. Did you see that word example? The example you've seen in us? That's a fabulous word. In fact, this word really came to life when I was in Bangladesh last year. Uh, I went to a marketplace there, and I'm sure you have very similar markets to exactly what I saw. But, um,. Uh, you, You have some of the most beautiful clothing, okay, Um, and I'm looking for one that that would would be an example of what I'm about to say as an illustration. Um, If you buy fabric by like the meter, right, Uh, and in Senegal and in Niger we do the same thing, what you have is a repeating pattern, okay, Um, in, in a very real way, like a lot of what these ladies are wearing is a repeating pattern. But the way that that pattern is actually placed on the fabric, it's not printed like that. The fabric is actually printed in a solitary color. And then what they have is it's like these these massive blocks of wood. Maybe some of you have seen it. And the blocks of wood are then dipped into certain ink colors. And then they're pressed on the clothing. And it's amazing how fast they can do it in a very neat fashion but they produce these repeating patterns from these presses. Well, these presses done by either a dye um, or some form of ink, the word example is the idea of this uh, mold or the idea of this uh, stamp that's going on. So what, 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 what is the picture here? The picture is that you have a pattern that you're repeating. But the pattern you're repeating is not a pattern of my life being the primary example. It's Christ who's the example, us being in Christ. And so now all the world is getting is Christ in us ultimately. And so that's what's being imprinted on lives. So it's saying, Walk according to the example that you have in us. So what are we transmitting? What are we pressing on a life? I hope what I'm pressing on a life is not me. In fact, I would hope you forget about me, but what's been pressed on your life is Christ in me, the hope of glory. The true prize. We saw our passion for Christ. We saw our pursuit of Christ. And now we see the prize of Jesus Christ. This is that the word tupos example. That's what we're leaving in First Corinthians chapter eleven verse one. Paul says, "Imitate me, as I also imitate Christ Jesus." And wouldn't it be beautiful if, without any conviction, you could say that to those around you, like, "Walk in my steps, because I'm imitating Christ." That sounds arrogant. And yet, that's what Paul was able to say. Not because Paul was a heroic character. If anything, we read the fact that he realizes I'm the chief of sinners. But he recognized what a great Savior he had. So I want to talk just a minute, though, about discipleship. Because I believe that this is what's going on here. And he repeats it again in chapter 4. When you get down to verses 9 and 10. He's saying the example that you've seen in me, that you've heard from me, that you've learned from me, uh, received from me, four things. Um, You can see it in chapter 4, verse 9. It's exciting because what he's saying is he's like, now, this is yours to go repeat again. Discipleship, though, is oftentimes very misunderstood, I think, in the church. And I'll tell you why. I'm, I'm first in line to say that I lived misunderstanding discipleship quite a bit. I assume discipleship started after somebody came to know Christ. Some of you are like, well, that's when it starts. Not in the Bible. In the Bible, discipleship doesn't start after you come to know Christ. When Jesus chose disciples, he chose 12 men, one who was going to reject him, period. They didn't know fully who he was. It wasn't until Matthew 16, he calls them in Matthew 10, Matthew 16, that Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But not only that, he had a lot of other disciples, not the 12, the 12 close ones. In John chapter 6, many disciples forsook him and followed him no longer after he gave them a tough message. And then that's when he says to the other 12, he's like, are you guys going to leave me too? And Peter speaks up and says, uh, almost as though to say, like, we would love to, but where can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. What we see as a picture in scripture is disciples... Making disciples is not a convert. You can't make a convert. You you can't convert a soul. You can't save an individual. That's not your job. You also can't produce fruit. You bear fruit. Some plants, some water, God gives the increase. And he who plants is nothing. He who waters is nothing. But God who gives the increase. We are God's building. And that's all from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. So, what is this job of discipleship? Exactly this idea of tupos. We are literally stamping on others the picture of Jesus Christ. We're literally giving them an example in which to follow. We're sharing what we have learned of him. And that's why the other day during the question and answer session, I said, when I view, when I view discipleship, I see it as three things. I see it in Christ's life, but I also see it in the lives of others after that. And what are those three things? I see it as, yes, in the Word, we learn from the Word of God. We, we grow in knowing what the Word of God teaches and, and breaking it down so that we can pick, pick up where we're at and understand it in the Word but also in the way we share life with those around us. With my Muslim friends, every Muslim friend I have, and I just use Muslims as an example because I live among them. I live in a 98% Islamic country, okay, most recently. And so that's why I use Muslims as examples because they're my neighbors and they're the guys I go to the grocery store with and they're the ones I'm in the field with, all right? So I want every Muslim friend to become a disciple of Jesus, but just because they're a disciple of Jesus does not mean that they're saved. You see, a disciple has to come to a point of Peter, where Jesus says, so who do you say that I am? You know, as a kid, my parents taught me, Nathan, don't just trust any stranger. Yes, trust those that we introduce you to, those that, you know, um, are, you know, that, 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 that obviously are close to the family, but don't just trust any random person. And yet, oftentimes when we do evangelism, we almost treat it like, just put your faith in Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? Most people in this world have the wrong background to who Jesus is. They've been lied to concerning who he is, his character, what he said. And it's not that Christ has lied, it's that many people lie about Christ. So when I say believe in Jesus Christ, if I say believe in Jesus Christ to a Muslim, they've got a lot of things about Christ that are not Christ. If I say believe in Jesus Christ to a Mormon, there's a lot of things about Christ that are not Christ. So you see, the first thing that's got to go on is you make a disciple. What's a disciple? A learner, a student. In other words, in your life, in the word. But then the final thing, in the work. Jesus included guys like Judas in the work in Matthew 10. I mean, it's amazing. I want them to see, hey, Christ is not just a message I preach. Christ is not just someone I live. Like, Christ dominates every area of my life. We want people to taste the value of who He is to us. So when Paul is saying this transmission, he's saying, when I turn, when I start thinking differently, when I take this close and hold it close, it's going to affect every relationship. I'll tell you right now, I, I trust I'm making disciples here, not of me. Making disciples of Jesus, learners, worshipers. I pray that we're in awe of who He is, and vice versa. You're discipling me in many ways. That's the exciting thing. Go and make disciples, but every disciple has to come to the point of choosing. Who is Jesus Christ? I say that as encouragement to you. Christ didn't give you an impossible command. He gave you something that just requires obedience. Go into all the world and make disciples. And when that disciple responds to Christ, all right, what's going to happen next? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when they're baptized, teach them to observe everything I've commanded. Notice they're not observing it until they're in the family. That's religion if the observe was the first thing. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you and then make a disciple and have them baptized. What? No, 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 no. It doesn't go that way. And I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. See, Paul says, transmit this. Transmit this message that you've received. Give an example to every life around you of what you're pursuing. Now, here's the good news for you. Yeah, use your mouth. That's great. But the good news is this. I guarantee when you start turning and you start thinking like Christ, people are going to come, like we talked about the other day in First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. People are going to come and they're going to start asking you questions saying, why are you you, you... you make a lot of money. Why are you living like that? Oh, because I'm I'm investing in in my real country. I'm investing in my true home. I'm investing what actually will last. Well, why do you spend your weekends there? Why do you, why, why did you do that for that person? They don't even like you. They're going to start asking you all, why? Because I'm not making myself of any reputation. I'm, I'm thinking differently about everything. And as I think differently about everything and I bring people along in my life, and that's what discipleship requires discipleship requires relationships that are close. They're going to catch the value of Christ by just being close to you. So I encourage you, this transmission is really an invitation. So we see that after we turn, after we start thinking differently, after we take hold of what, uh, what, what we've been given, we transmit it. We transmit it in a very practical way. But one final thing I just want to touch on before we finish up this morning's first session. Verse 17, or verse 18. For many, this is the negative. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Pause there, even with tears. Isn't that, oh, let, let me just go, okay. I, I usually do this, by the way, a whole lot more than i do done with you guys. You guys are phenomenal, But I've seen two guys on this side that are looking really tired. And by tired, I mean you have your eyes closed. So I encourage you, wake up for your own sake, all right? And stick with us one more morning. You probably had a phenomenal late night, and I appreciate that. But I love you enough to say, now is not the time for sleep, brothers. Next time, I will come, and I will give you a little bit of a squeeze on the shoulder, okay? So, I shall come to you shortly. Back to the Word of God. Oh, yeah, ask Hudson if I'm serious. Huh. Oh, yeah, yeah. No one's exempt. It just happened to be two younger men. But even if it's an uncle, I'll give you a hug, all right? <laughs> I love you all. All right, moving on. Back to the word. He says, even with tears. Isn't that interesting? He says, even with tears. This is a, a, an epistle of joy. All throughout, it's been rejoice, joy, joy. And these are not like tears of joy, these are tears of complete anguish. If you've tracked this word tears all the way through the the word of God, you see this is a dramatic form of tears. And here he is weeping over those. And what does he say about them? They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. I think it's important that we end here this morning, and the final word I'll give you is a tragedy. This is a tragedy. Why is it a tragedy? It's happening in the church. And so I think I would be naive to to look out at all of you, and I pray I'm wrong, okay? I really pray I'm wrong. But I think I'm naive to look out at all of you and assume that there are no enemies of the cross in this room. Isn't that crazy? Enemies. It doesn't mean like you just are like not close friends with Jesus or like you're not knowing him intimately. No, that's not what I said. Enemies. Let let, let me take the same word and put it in in another verse. James chapter 4, verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God and whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself? It's a choice, okay? You're not being forced makes himself a friend of the world, makes himself an enemy of God. Okay, you know how easily this happens? Because when we're talking enemy, the word there is adversary, okay? There's somebody else who has the word adversary to his name, um, and it may be someone that we refer to as Satan. Now, if you go to Matthew chapter 16, just think through with me, you can see it later on. It's in verses uh, 21 to 23 specifically, we have Jesus tell that he's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of uh, the scribes and, and the men. And then, and then he'll die and rise again the third day. Now, I don't think any of the disciples heard the part about rising again the third day because they're, none of them are talking about that. They're all talking about the fact that you shouldn't die. So, so Peter pulls Jesus aside and, and tells him that basically, forbid it, Lord, like, no, these things shall not be. What does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Okay, this is almost identical. He says, get behind me, adversary. Get behind me, enemy. What Jesus is saying there is you want the crown before the cross. What, what, what are these guys going for in Philippians? Their God is their belly. I don't mean food is the only problem here. I'm talking their appetites. The appetites of the flesh will make you an enemy of God. This is what the Word of God teaches and I've got no reason to believe anything else. I truly believe... That when we are driven by earthly appetites, we will be in direct opposition to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why the very next verse after he says, get behind me, Satan, he says to the disciples, and it's a broad group because over in, I think, Luke, it says all, and in Mark, it says another broad term. That's when he says, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross, Luke, daily and follow me. Isn't it interesting he said, get behind me, Satan? That means that Peter was trying to go in front of him. You're going to follow Christ. It leads to Gethsemane, to Gabbatha, to the grave, and to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I have to ask, I have to ask it. Is there somebody here and you know that right now you are an enemy of the cross? You are intentionally choosing to live a life that avoids the cross. And thus you are preaching a message to your friends that Jesus did not mean what he said. You're perverting the gospel and you hate your friends because you would rather them approve of your life or you would rather just love your own life than care about eternal souls. I say this to myself, but you can listen in. Be very careful to assume the enemy of the cross is not you. turn, think, take, transmit, tragedy. We're not going to end there. We're going to end this session here. But don't worry, there's a beautiful climatic ending to this entire retreat. Verses 20 and 21 will leave us with our hearts set on home with our hearts, our eyes gazing on our Savior, and with this anxious anticipation that Christ is coming soon. It's going to be beautiful. I want to close by reading you a poem. A poem I find very convicting. And as I conclude this poem, I'll I'll close in prayer. C.T. Studd. Most of us know him for his investment in the kingdom of God, but he was actually a very famous cricket player previously, and he gave up that career to take the gospel all over the world. He wrote this, and I'll just close with it. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet And stand before his judgment seat. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life the still small voice. Gently pleads for a better choice. Bidding me selfish aims to leave. And to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, uh, I know I'll say, Twas worth it all. Only one life twill soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for Thee. Father, we have but one passion to live for, one pursuit to follow, one prize to claim. And our only one life will soon be passed. So Lord, teach us to number our days that we might apply our heart unto wisdom. Not that we might be smarter Christians, but that we might be more intense lovers of Jesus Christ. In whose precious name I pray. Amen. Amen.